This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kelly Rimmer, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great to be here. Yes, it's second time, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, and the last time was about two years ago. It was, that's right. That was in our sort of early development podcast stage. Yes. Okay, so um, you've developed two editions <laughs> over that time, as we have. Let me introduce you. Kelly is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of 10 novels, including The Secret Daughter and The Things We Cannot Say. So New York Times bestseller list, Wall Street Journal bestseller list and USA Today. Wow. I know. It's really surreal. It is. Um, Her newest book is Truths I Never Told You, released in February. It's a heart-tugging story of family secrets that all begins with the discovery of a tattered letter in the attic. The story deals with the topics of postnatal depression and equality, among others, and it is an unputdownable, unforgettable story of motherhood and marriage. Kelly has sold more than one million books um, and her novels have been translated into more than 20 languages. Kelly lives in rural Australia with her family and fantastically naughty dogs, Sully and Basil. I mean, that's a huge body of work, isn't it, for a young person? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I write fast. Um, it probably helps that I don't really have any hobbies. Mm. <laughs> or a life. <laughs> or a life. I really, once this story takes hold, I just have to write it. Yeah. So. Uh, tell me a little bit, um, and I know some people would have heard the first podcast, but tell me a little bit about how you how your career launched, how you got into writing. Yes. So I was first published by um, a digital publisher in the UK, Bookature. Yeah. Um, I had a really wonderful experience with them. They so published my first four books. and um, How did that happen? Um, I, <laughs> that happened because I, I actually had made a list of publishers that I might submit to one day, but was yeah. very, very nervous about exposing my writing to anyone, really, even mm-hmm. my closest friends. Some of them didn't even know I was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really wanted to be published. I had an idea that I should be published by the time I was 35. You know, you have this, this thought that if it's, if I don't do something by a certain time, it's too late. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Mm. Um, the thing that I didn't realise then is that writing is not like ballet. It, yeah. It's <laughs> never too late to start. Yeah. Um, and same with publishing. So my hobby of writing had been my favourite thing to do and my passion, but it was mine and nobody else got to see it. Yeah. And then I was 34 and <laughs> thinking that invisible deadline I'd set for myself Time was looming. looming. Yeah. yeah, so I self-published a book quite impulsively. I'd had it edited when I was, you know, in my 20s and had intended to submit it but was always scared of rejection and negative feedback and wasn't sure how I'd cope with that. Um, but that experience taught me that I could deal with 
negative feedback and it actually didn't phase me too much. So then I started making a list of publishers that I might submit to. And at the top of the list was Bookature in the UK. They were brand new and quite small. And I thought, I thought those markets overseas would possibly be easier to find a publisher in. I thought the Australian market sounded too small and too tough. And, you know, I'd look at publisher websites and it'd say, you need an agent. And then I'd look at the agent websites and they'd say, we're not taking we're not taking submissions. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. but, um, but this publisher in the UK was, you know, did had a more positive rhetoric on their website. And yeah. so I submitted to them and they quite impulsively again, and they took it. Oh, wow. And off we went. And off yeah. you went. Mm. Um, tell me about the transition as a writer from digital to print. Tell me how that happened for you. Yes. Um, so my first book did well and then my second book did really, really well. And I started getting emails from different publishers and some agents offering to represent me and, you know, let's have a conversation. Um, and at first I did think a lot of that was spam, yeah. including the email from my agent that I'm now with and love to bits. Um, but once I realised that they were genuine, I thought, well, this is an opportunity here. Yeah. And the transition was actually fairly easy. I was quite quite lucky to partner with great publishers like Hachette in Australia. Um, in, in the US, I'm with Harlequin. Um, and it just, it did happen kind of organically, but it's really quite different. This is publishing in traditional publishers. It's a lot more interpersonal. I'm doing events yeah. with people in the, in the room, you know, and... Um, and I've been able to take my daughter to the bookstore and she can see that there are books on the shelf that, yeah. you know, so it's it's a little bit more tactile. Yeah. Um, in the writing process, is there a difference? No. No. Uh, no. Um, the, my, my editorial with the digital publisher was brilliant yeah. and my editorial with my traditional publishers is brilliant too. Yeah. So that is one thing that is virtually identical. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Do you know, I think um, at the editorial process is the difference between an average book and a great book. I 100% with you, agree yeah. with you. It is no one, no writer is writing a book that is perfect. It, and that is a hard lesson to learn that you yeah. cannot, you cannot do this alone. The difference between what I produce, which is a manuscript, and what ends up on the shelf, which is a book, there is a team of people that make that transition. And without them, I'm writing, my drafts are appallingly bad, like embarrassingly bad. Yeah. And hopefully what ends up in with between the covers isn't, but it's not me that's, I mean, I'm working with people, but yeah. I need those people. And you have to people. do the work. That's Absolutely. Right. Yeah. You have to be open to hard feedback. I still sometimes cry when I get my edit notes, you know, <laughs> you? even after 10 books. <laughs> but, and you know, you have a day where you're like, oh, how could she say that? She's so wrong, you know, and then the next day you're like, oh, no. Yeah, she's right. You yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think for me, I mean, I don't know how people read self-published books because they don't have that, you know, and that's the biggest problem, I think, between self-publishing and being published. There are some some self-publishers work with good editors. Yes. And you see, you do see the difference. But that's right. anyone who is publishing a book that hasn't got that editorial input is yeah. just doing themselves a disservice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Totally. Okay, talk to me about the things, um, oh, the truths I never told you. Talk to me about that because that's uh, it really touches on some subjects that I want to talk to you about. Yes. So I my last book um, was The Things We Cannot Say, which is a, a big book that t- took me longer than my books usually take. I'd been thinking about it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then and it, it was like the book of my heart. And then I'm thinking, what am I going to write about next? And I really 
really was quite tough to come up with the next concept in a way that I haven't experienced before because I'm constantly having ideas. Well, and you're growing as a writer, aren't you? I hope you so. That's, yeah. that's the goal. You always yeah. want to be improving and learning. Yeah, um, and growing even with just, you know, the emotional development of your characters yes. and everything else. Because what you write at, and I don't know how old you are, but what you write at 50 is very different to what you write at 25, Absolutely. For that yeah. is very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love tackling tough subjects. It is mm. my favourite thing about writing is research and learning and understanding. Mm. Um, and I had wanted to write about postnatal depression for a while, but couldn't quite come up with the right concept for it. So that was... And had, is it something you would experience? No, no, I hadn't. And since then, I've learned that some of my friends had, and yes. I didn't realise it yeah, at the time. Because it was a huge taboo for a long time, wasn't it? Yes. And still, I think for some people, it's really difficult to talk yeah. about. So I wanted to learn and I wanted to write about it, but I didn't have the right concept. Yeah. And I also wanted to write, I had, you know, you read different media and mm. little things stick in your brain. And mm. I had read about, I won't say too much about it because it is mm. a bit of a spoiler, but there was this particular referendum in Seattle in the 70s. And it was quite a unique scenario and uniquely um, it passed with a majority. It was a really, really odd kind of occurrence. So I wanted to write about that at some point. And I wanted to write about a, a subset of siblings, a larger, you know, I've written about siblings before, but I wanted to write about a set of four with a dynamic kind of like the one I have with my own siblings, which mm. is we're all grown ups with jobs and mortgages and kids. Um, but when we get together, we're all suddenly six again. You know, we're, that playful, it's quite mm. unique the way all the, the argument can do that. Oh, yeah, whatever. we will fight yeah. over anything. Yeah. And, but even so, we are still really close. So mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of explore that in a book too, but I didn't have, it wasn't, I wasn't going to write about those three things together. It was just, they were all on my list of things to write about one day. And then I heard a Radio Lab podcast um, about frontotemporal dementia which is this quite unique form of dementia. And there's this one variant of it which has this bizarre expression where people can late in life become incredibly artistic. And I, that, for whatever reason, was the piece that connected the other ideas all together. And out of that, I have come up with this book. Mm -hmm. And tell us what it's about. So it's about a family in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, they we have two timelines. I love to write dual timeline novels. So one is 1959. And we have Grace, and Grace is a very young mum with four children under five, um, and she has had terrible postnatal depression. So Grace is coming to us through a series of, of journal entries or letters that she's written. And then in 1996, we have her daughter Beth, who after six years of fertility treatment has finally had mm. her long-awaited son, and things aren't as easy as she thought they'd be. And she's kind of struggling to figure out why this is not working, why motherhood is not working for her. At the same time, her father, Patrick, has frontotemporal dementia and he they've just moved him into a nursing home. He's kind of going to palliative care and Beth offers to clean out the family home. And when she does, she gets to the, the attic playroom that they had as a child and finds that dad has locked the door. And when they finally bust through it, they discover a series of notes and some artworks that he's painted, as well as a huge mess. And so as Beth and her siblings untangle that, they learn that what they understand about their family and their mum, who has long since died, um, wasn't quite what really happened. Mm. It's quite complex and so many interwoven stories, but beautifully, beautifully 
told and easy to read. Thank Tell you. me a little bit about um, postnatal depression. So what kind of, I mean, because it seemed to me that you nailed it. No, I've, I've obviously, I've never had that experience, but I have seen people go through it. And do you know, and I want to talk about this and you'll know more about it than I do. I often wonder, like, when people have, when women have one baby and they suffer postnatal depression, and then they go on to have a second baby or a third baby and they're still, I just think, what are you doing? Mm. But then I don't know enough about it. Mm. Tell me about there's that. There's a scene, so Grace has that very yeah. situation happen in her life and there's a scene where she's speaking to her sister and she says, but maybe next time it'll be easier. And she's mm. blaming herself, saying maybe maybe next time if I have another baby down the track, maybe, mm. maybe, maybe I'll, I'll cope better. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's that hopefulness, but I think, is, is postnatal depression about coping? Talk to me no, about what you found no. out about. I mean, we yeah. know now depression is a, it's about brain chemistry yes. and it's yeah. it's not about strength or weakness or you know Absolutely. ability. It's mm. actually just about the way your brain works. Yeah. And when you think about pregnancy and childbirth, it is physically one of the hardest things a human being can do. And then it's not but the birth isn't the ending. It's not like oh it's all over now I can rest. Now you've got a dependent child and in the case of women with multiple children, you've got toddlers or preschoolers or other infants that you've got to care for while you recover from this incredibly difficult thing that you've just been through. And trauma in a way, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. almost every birth is a trauma, isn't Absolutely. it, to your body? Yes. Um, and so, and people often say it's not related to um, sleep deprivation, but whenever I suffer <laughs> sleep deprivation, which isn't that often, maybe once or twice in my life, I can't stop crying the next day. Yeah. So there's got to be some kind of correlation, right? I, yeah, I don't think it, it helps. I mean, in, it doesn't. in the book we have Beth who is incredibly sleep deprived mm. and her insomnia is related to her anxiety. She can't sleep because she's worrying and she's thinking about all these things and the more sleep deprived she gets, the less she's able to cope at all with life in general. And mm. I, there's, you know, the sleep, we know how important sleep is. Mm. And even for a mother who doesn't have postnatal depression, she's going to be sleep deprived. And that mm. just does make everything so much more difficult. Doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So tell me what you found out about postnatal depression. So I did a lot of, you know, you can imagine I yeah. did a lot of reading and I listened, yeah. I actually love podcasts. So yeah. I listened to a bunch of oral history podcasts. Right. Um, and then I had written a first draft and I was almost ready to send it to my editor, but something was kind of missing. It just, there was heart not there. Something mm. wasn't right. So I put a call out on my personal Facebook page just saying, is anyone willing to share a story with me about postnatal depression? And I thought maybe one or two people would, you know, reply. Um, but I had so many 
people, even within so my circles. I know it? one in five women, <gasps> and including wow. one of my friends who we had a child at the same time. Mm. We were in contact when she had postnatal depression. I didn't know. She didn't tell me. We would talk about how hard breastfeeding was, but we, mm. but she never actually said she had to have antidepressants and a year and a half of therapy. And meanwhile, we're really close, and she didn't feel she could share it with me. And when I think back to that time, I knew something wasn't right with her. But I thought it, it's a period of intense adjustment, isn't it? I mean. How do you know what's right and what's not right? Your whole life has just changed. You've just basically thrown and a bomb into it. And she'd probably be looking at you and thinking, well, she's coping. Why can't I? This yeah. is exactly right. Yeah. I went I had went to work quite quickly after I had my son. Mm. And so she was like, well, look at Kelly. You know, she's off there back at work. Mm. Everything's going great for her. I had my mum caring for my son and it was it, I had the easiest time ever. I was so lucky. But mm. I wouldn't I didn't I wouldn't have judged her for not you know, rabbit is not coping, mm. um, but but she didn't feel she could share it with me. And I think that's what was so fascinating about writing about postnatal depression at this time in history, when we are the generation of Instagram and the polished selves that we present on mm. social media, but we don't necessarily talk about the darker aspects to parenting and to motherhood in particular. Mm. I think everybody wants everybody else to think that they're doing brilliantly, but the reality is it's it's really hard sometimes mm-hmm. and we need one another. Mm-hmm. So I did I did um spoke to 13 different women over the wow. uh, yeah and I could have I could have spoken to 30 or 40 if I mm-hmm. had time and you know yeah. some via Skype, some via phone, some I sat down and had coffee with mm-hmm. and every story was completely different. And this was something that I hadn't picked up from my reading. This you know postnatal depression is if you meet one woman who's had it, you've met one woman who's had it. It's That's not, all. It's yeah. not. Yeah. It's different for everybody. But the one thing that was common between them all was they all said something like, I felt so lonely. I felt like I was the only person in the world who had this. I felt so isolated. And so that completely that was changed the, the tone thread. of the book. Yeah. yeah. And what comes first, do you think? Um, again, it's different for everybody. It's one one lady said to me, she just, she couldn't sleep. And she just, the little things that were happening in her life were just impossible for her to deal with. Mm. So she didn't, couldn't pick up the phone and make the call to the baby health nurse for the checkup that she needed to organise. That was just impossible for her to do. So, and another lady was saying it was about anger. She just was finding that she was hanging out the washing one day and the peg dropped and she just was screaming at the peg, you know. Um, and some talked about sadness and, mm. and crying and just. And do we know what causes it? No, I don't. I, you know, it's the same as it's a type of depression. So it's so it about triggers, brain chemistry. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it is triggered by pregnancy and childbirth. If you think about the hormones, the, the immense changes that a mm. woman's body goes through, um, who knows? I did. I did discover that sometimes there's a genetic component, mm. and so that I've explored that a little bit in the book. Um, but who knows? It's a huge responsibility to tackle a subject like that in fiction, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. Every time I start a new book and I start one that has <laughs> every single one of them has some huge, difficult um, subject to explore, um, I love to research, but I really, the, the responsibility to get it right and to, ca- you're trying to capture something of human existence and condense it down into text and put it in a format that other people can read and then hopefully understand things a little differently. If you, if I think about that too much, I think my brain would explode. <laughs> And also too, I, I I think if you don't do that work, then we as a reader, we we see through that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Do people write to you about yes. your books? Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm, Talk to me about that. Um, it is probably one of the best parts of the job. Mm. Um, 
Mm. Like, you know, bestseller lists and sales Mm. are really great and important and wonderful. I feel very lucky. Absolutely. But I've had, I wrote a book about forced adoption. I've had women send me their stories that they've never told anyone. Mm. They've read my book and then for the first time in 50, 60 years, they've sat at a computer and told their story. Like that, that will be, no matter what happens in the rest of my life, that is a goal that just, it's, you can't compare it to anything else. Um, I've written a book about addiction and I've had, particularly from people in the US where the opioid crisis has been just terrible. unimaginably mm-hmm. terrible, people who've written to me and shared their stories about lost loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and my last book um, explored raising a child with autism and I had one lady email me and say, I felt like you'd seen me and I didn't know how much I needed to be seen. And even thinking about that, wow. I get a bit emotional. Mm. Um, you know, I get negative emails too, of course. Oh, sure. yeah. um, and I I have to be honest, I struggle to, it takes me a long time to reply because I just get so many now, but mm. but I read every single one and it is the best, is the best and most important part of what I do. It's mm. people connecting with the story that I've written. Mm. And it is, I mean, I talk about empathy a lot, particularly with fiction, because I think that if you don't take the reader on that empathetic ride, then there's no point reading the book, yes. you know, in a way. I yes. mean, that's how you capture people's imaginations, yes. right? Yeah. That is exactly right. Yeah. Mm. And you do that really well. Oh, thank you. That is probably the best compliment you could give me. That means oh. so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> so are you writing a book a year? Uh, I'm actually writing two genres at the moment. Oh, wow. So I'm doing a little more than a book a year. Yeah. Um, so I it, it started because I wanted to write. So I'm writing about heavy subjects all the time and yeah. I, I do write fairly fast. Mm-hmm. I don't like to be blocked. So I started writing a kind of lighthearted contemporary romance series so that I had something to kind of flick to when I got a bit stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've now had... Oh, you know, some people, they go for a walk or they might go for a swim <laughs> or they might you wash know, the do dishes. do the housework. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My husband's no. like, why? Why didn't you just do the housework? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do the housework. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I, write, I write that series as well. And yeah. I, so that's puts me a bit over a book a year. Yeah. And tell me, how do you plan your day as a writer? How do you approach oh, writing? Uh, if that, if there's one thing I could change about my process, it would be how scatterbrained it is. Um, mm. I, when I'm writing a first draft, I, I become a little bit obsessive and I'll, I'll write just crazy long days, just getting it out. Um, and then other times it's a lot looser, you know, I might edit a little bit here and then go for a walk. I do walk the dogs a bit. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you need to clear your head, yeah. right? Yeah, and if yeah, I get I really that. stuck on a scene and I and I don't want to skip it or I need to, I, I do kind of write a little bit like in patches. So if I get to something and it's just not working, I'll go past it and come back to it. Um, but eventually I do need to come back to it. And so sometimes I'll go for a walk um, mm. to just think it through mm. and see it play out in my mind so I know how to capture it. Um, yeah, it is very, it's so ad hoc and I wish I was more structured with it, but it just doesn't work But you that way. do write every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty yep. much, yeah. 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 Unless, well, you know, <laughs> there has to be something extraordinary going on for me not to. Mm. And do you like the promotional process of it? Like, you know, the conversations you're having with, well, of course you're going to say you like my conversation <laughs> and it will be the best <laughs> podcast out there. But outside of that, I often wonder, and, you know, I haven't asked authors a lot, this a lot, but, you know, it's really such an introverted job, isn't mm, it? You know? It really is. And then we just pull you out to yep. face the world yep. for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, oh, it's so fun. Like you get to have conversations with yeah. people. And I think meeting readers must be fun. It is amazing. Yeah. Um, I w- had an event last night and 
you know, you have a line of people waiting for you to sign their book and two of the people in the line cried when I was talking to them about oh, different wow. things that my yeah. work's touched upon or about wanting to write themselves and me explaining some things to them. How could how could you ever not love that? I mean, mm. they're not crying because they're sad about mm. <laughs> meeting you. That would be a bit different. But um, that real, I mean, it's all about connection. As much as every writer is in some way an introvert because, you know, you are spending so much time yeah. by yourself at the keyboard, it is pretty magical to look someone in the eye and for them to say, I really enjoyed something. You know, your work, it's yeah. it is a real-life connection. Um, it, it's not always easy to do, though, mm. um, but, but it is... Yeah, it's important and it's good and it's special. Yeah. Well, I think you should keep it up. Keep up Thank the great you. writing. Thank you so um, much. Kelly Rimmer, thanks for coming in to talk with us today. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.